And as a community, for Sunday mornings especially, we are in a long season, just beginning a long season of thinking about our, our mission here as a church in terms of uh, our central heartbeat of learning to love like Jesus. And if we want to learn to love like Jesus, well, we have to know what we, we mean by that. So over the course of this next year, I'm going to be preaching through various kind of mini-sermons uh, on relationships, on marriages, on parenting, on learning to love in the community of Christ, how everything we believe, our whole belief structure as Christians centers around love. That's what it hangs upon. And so... Um, we're just beginning that year of, of, of learning to what, what it is to love like Jesus. And the very place we begin is kind of in this rescue project. We have to rescue this word love from our culture because love can, can mean so many different things, can it, to, um, to what, we're, what we understand. Um, we're trying to snap out of these powerful visions of love which, which have far more to do with what we can get from other people. We can get these feelings of affirmation and worth and get, get these uh, feelings of being special. And love, and, and by, we'll get into this a little bit later, but what do we mean by the word, I love you? What does that mean? And how in our culture, it's, it's such a uh, self-oriented kind of word. And yet when we talk about love in the Christian way of, of things, it's the complete opposite of that. It's giving, it's giving ourselves away and that we become the happiest and the most satisfied as human beings when we know that our lifeblood has been poured out for another person and they're living because of that. And that's, we've got a couple of these verses that we're kind of piling on to keep showing you that difference between our culture and what the Christian life is about. So uh, John, in, uh, John 15, 13, Jesus says that no one has experienced greater love than this, someone putting his life on the line for a friend. And that was two weeks ago. And by the way, if you've missed, this is part four of the first miniseries, the final sermon of the first miniseries. And uh, if you missed any of those, they're on, on the website. You can find them there. But last week, I brought up the second kind of key verse, which is from the book of Acts. And Paul is speaking here. And he said that he helped, his whole life was to help out people who were unfortunate and weak. And so he said, I always did everything I did remembering that the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this blessed idea really is the closest thing to what our culture knows as happiness. We are happiest. We are most satisfied. We haven't experienced anything that comes close to love and it's something like putting our life on the line and giving it away. And so we have to rescue the word into this whole orbit of ideas. And today I'm going to add one more verse onto this to help us get there. In Philippians, Paul's writing to the, the community there and he's telling them that their love should be that of Christ. If you want to know what love is, look at Christ's love. And this is the nature. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This kind of rounds out our initial understanding of what love looks like. It has no self-orientation, no vain conceit, which is like very, um, very quickly thinking of ourselves as greater than others. And he says, rather in humility, value others above yourself. And what might that look like? And how might that change if we take love out of this self-oriented idea into the self-giving idea? How is that going to change? Think about it. How, th how does that change every relationship that you're in? How does it change every encounter that you, uh, that you experience? Have the same love as Christ. 
take this on. And we'll, we'll get into this as the course of the year goes on in terms of how this works. Because like, we can describe love, and I'll finish off this sermon as kind of the end of des- a description of, of Christian love. But then how does that happen? Because it seems like such a lofty goal. It seems like there's so many impurities inside of us. How do we get there? And, and we'll begin to address the ways that we tend uh, tend to that work of God changing us into Jesus-like lovers. But for this week, you know, I've talked about, you know, it, it seems so, you know, kind of straightforward. We understand it. But then when we get into giving it and, and, and all the impurities involved, we kind of, Realize that there's a lot of work here. So self-preservation, self-exaltation, self-righteousness. These are kind of three words that I've gathered together to think about Jesus' teaching on love when he holds love before us. These are the kind of things which he says there's none of these things in love. No self-preservation, no self-exaltation, no self-righteousness. Instead, what we're going to experience in love is something like cross-bearing, and we're going to be after and seek low positions in this world. We're going to forgive others. That's what love is going to feel like. And so we've been going through these, this whole kind of chart of ideas here for the past couple of weeks. But now we get into self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is this feeling that everyone else is the incompetent problem. You'll let that sink in for a minute. That feeling that we can walk around with that everyone else around us is the incompetent problem. It's that feeling that you hold some sort of right to hold others to account because you're not as bad as them. It gives you this permission to sort of point out their faults. They have less problems than we do, so uh, we're going to go point it out. Jesus has this hilarious image of a person walking around with a branch sticking out of their eye and them not knowing it. It's like you walk into a tree and a branch just snapped off right here and you're walking around and you don't know it and you have this person digging in another person's eye trying to get a little speck out. You can imagine how painful that might be if someone with a plank in your eye came close to your eye. It's this hilarious image that Jesus is like, don't be like, a, don't be like that. Uh, and so I'm not sure. I'm going to do a raise of hands here. How many people know someone who's a self-righteous person? Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> You can be honest. We all know a self-righteous person, if not many. Um, I, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it when my children can't find things. You know, like, like they, they're like, Dad, can you help me find such? And I've learned to count to like 20. And here it comes. Oh, no problem. I got it. You know, like, or I can't find it. I can't find it. And I'll say to my kids, if I can find it within 10 seconds... I'm going to give you a thousand kisses, which is a punishment. <laughs> and yet, who's the worst? I can't, I can't find anything. I am the worst at finding things. And Eve is like there shaking her head back there like, You're the, that's where they get it from, Keith. It's you. You're the one who can't find anything. And it's true. And I've had to develop the six-foot rule. I mean, I don't know if you know about the six-foot rule, if you guys know. If you can't find something like your keys or your wallet or something that you're just desperately in a huff about, it's always within six feet. 99% of times within six feet of you. So instead of walking back and forth across the house, I just kind of do this. And 90% of the time it's there. I am the worst, and yet how angry and furious I can get when my kids can't find things. I mean, that's, it's funny, right? But, then, and, but, but it goes from there. And we as human beings can get so self-righteous about ourselves. 
um, that, that it ruins our relationships. It ruins everything that we're trying to build. And so as we, as we get into this, we remember that uh, to find Jesus' vision of love, and especially this point about self-righteousness, to get into Jesus' vision of love, we need to look closely at his middle ministry. And what I mean by that is Jesus begins his ministry by being baptized by his cousin John. And he goes about Galilee doing miracles, gathering crowds, doing all sorts of things he maybe shouldn't be doing because it wasn't right in the religious understandings of the day. He's challenging the religious leaders, and yet he's gathering people and announcing the kingdom of God. That's the beginning of his ministry. And all four gospels give us something about his, the beginning. But, and, and they're a bit different, and they go in a bit different ways, and they show Jesus in a bit different angles. But then... They all four Gospels converge up at the feeding of the 5,000. And there's this moment in all four Gospels that are tracking with each other. Uh, and when, when, when you do, you find out that there's this middle ministry that the early Christians remembered. And part of that was when Jesus began saying hard things. He began uh, saying uh, things about the kingdom that people didn't expect. And after he would say these hard things, people would leave because they were so scandalized by the implications. So uh, here, we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, him talking about take, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me, and all of that's involved with self-denial and cross-bearing and following Jesus, and how this is almost a bit of a, a, a way to describe how love works. Uh, if you don't have all three of those different movements, you don't have love. And... Last week, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this work that we have to do if we're going to be lovers like Jesus, to humble ourselves over and over again. And then finally here today, this third piece in the middle ministry, have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I have had on you. So what happens here is that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching these kinds of things. His disciples are getting to hear and understand the point that he's making. This is not going to be simple and easy, but uh, it's straightforward enough if we, if we have ears to hear. And Peter comes to Jesus um, and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? This is kind of, he, this, this question was sparked somehow in Peter's heart. And so he comes up and asks Jesus about forgiveness. It is interesting that our English word kind of helps us out here. And, you know, this forgiving is, is about giving. It, it fits firmly into the concepts of, of selfless love. It's a giving kind of action. But we have to figure out a, a little bit about what kind of things we're giving. What does it mean to forgive someone? What, what exactly are we giving away? And I'm going to take a, a moment here to kind of clear the ground, so to speak, on this concept and idea of forgiveness. Because uh, forgiveness and self-righteousness, you see, are just very, very tightly bound together. Those, Jesus is going to try to get us to see that those who cannot forgive, who cannot let go and forgive someone a wrong, uh, have some self-righteousness work to do. And so forgiveness, just because forgiveness, we've, we've heard so many kind of cheap versions of forgiveness. I want to clear the ground and get our, you know, uh, clear away any of the, of the misconceptions that we might have. So forgiveness, forgiveness in general is a smaller part of the larger work of reconciliation. 
We talk about the forgiveness on the cross. Jesus forgave us of our sins. Yes, he did that, but it was part of a larger work. There was a larger purpose involved in the forgiveness, which was to reconcile us to God. And any forgiveness work is to bring two people who are estranged back into relationship. And I've uh, come across this little book, which I would really uh, invite you to, to, to check out. It's called Forgiven as We've Been Forgiving, L. Gregory Jones and Celestine Muzakura. A Rwandan, a Rwandan um, author who uh, gives some really amazing self-testimony about the type of forgiveness that, I don't know, is Celestino a man or a woman? Do you know? Can you go, is it both? I don't know if this is a man or a woman. Okay. Uh, I'm just trying to be neutral here. Um, okay, so let's say that Celestine is a, is a woman. Is a woman. <laughs> this author here, she, she's, she gives these amazing stories about the kind of forgiveness she had to offer to people who were involved with killing her family. I mean, the, the extremes of forgiveness. And you get this beautiful understanding of just how powerful the Christian life is when it, terms, when it comes to forgiveness and just what's possible when, of bringing two groups of people back together. Uh, and I'm, I'm pulling a little bit of this out of that book there because uh, L. Gregory Jones is a scholar who's uh, a theologian who's talked about forgiveness. And he, he writes in there as well. And he reminds us that forgiveness is this smaller part of reconciliation. And we, it's about ongoing practices of staying in a relationship with people. It's about taking the time to really figure out what divides us so that we don't just let ourselves drift further and further apart until there's irreconcilable differences, so to speak. Um, challenging anything. It's like the Christian willingness to challenge anything that uh, perpetuates, they say in this book, perpetuates brokenness and division. And as we clear the ground of, of forgiveness, we realize that forgiveness is neither cheap, it's not impossible either. Uh, it's possible, but it's not cheap. Um, and think about this. If, if you want to get involved with the process of forgiveness, it involves speaking truth plainly. It isn't just about stuffing away what happened to you. It isn't about ignoring and pretending. You have to get it out. You have to, forgiveness is about uh, getting out the actual specific offense. And if you guys missed Carolyn Watley's sermon from the summer when she preached on this, it's online, and she goes through, she talks about forgiveness, and she spoke and taught so well about this. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon as well. But she, she, she was right along the lines of, of this book, where we're talking about how we speak truth plainly, how we have to acknowledge the bitterness that's in us, how, and the things which divide us, how um, we have to, like, in this process, summon up this idea of, well, well, a concern for others. You know, like, we have to remember that other people are children of God as well, and we have to then go about these processes of um, owning up to our own parts in the division, it's a specific naming, a specific um, uh, confronting of what divides us. And then we have to take steps of repentance and commit ourselves to change. And you can see how forgiveness is not an emotion. It's not something that, it's not a quick, fleeting thing that you do in your heart and it's one and done. It's a relational, reconciliatory process. And so for those of you who hear the word, you have to forgive someone in your heart and you realize how painful that is because that person's never owned up to what they've done and that person's never named it. You go, it's a very, very hard teaching. Um, so we're not just talking about this quick washing away of, of reality and what's happened. 
Um, and yet at the same time, it's not impossible. Some of us can walk around in our life and think, okay, all of that you know, heavy work and the reconciling work, Pastor Keith, it's just so difficult, and we kind of give up on it, and we have this resigned sense of I'm just going to sort of put my head down, and I'm going to be defeated, and I'm going to walk and pretend like it didn't happen. And we all know what happens if we're in that state long enough. It's going to explode sometime and somehow and in some way. Okay, so forgiveness is not cheap, but it's not impossible. We can get it out, and Jesus gives us the way of doing that. And so Peter comes and asks, and it's just as hard to forgive people, especially self-righteous people, who have no idea of their own part in, in the offense. Um, Peter comes up and asks him, so Jesus said seven times? Like, I can do this work seven times? And then Jesus says, I tell you, not seven, but 77 like, I don't know how many people, I've never done this, but some people may have been gone through so much relational difficulty. They may actually have a journal which says, like, numbered 1 through 77. And I'm on, like, 50, number 50 of forgiving this person. And, like, looking to the end of the time where they, have, they can sort of give up. Jesus, that's not the point. 77 is, like, a complete number. It's the, his point is, like, you're going to be bearing with this person. If you're going to follow me, and if you're going to be forgiven by the Father, you're going to be bearing with this person. For a long time, and if you if you don't, if you give up on it, um, you you can't be my disciple. That's how how clear he is on it. Now, Carolyn also brought up in that teaching this idea of forbearance. This idea of forbearance, it's a good word. It helps us to understand that forgiveness happens when the offense has been named, and both parties have uh, admitted their their fault in the process, and we're we're in that process, and we can forgive one another for that. But Sometimes we're not in a position where that can happen. Either the person is deceased or isn't willing to own up to and name the specific thing which has caused the, the problem. Um, and uh, in that sense, we're in forbearance. We're forbearing with the, um, the non-reconciliation. Even though we can still do some work in our heart and, and work to, to free us from the bitterness of it all, um, we're, we're in forbearance. I, I like that language. Um, so, so, anyway, clearing the ground here to help us get into this, because I think we hear Jesus say, forgive someone in your heart, and we think it's so cheap and so easy. And others of you might think, oh, it can never happen. But there, there are ways that he sets out for this to work. And, and if you need help, if you're someone who's like, I don't know, Pastor Keith, like, I've, I'm, I can't forgive this person, or I have, I thought I have, but we're not reconciled, and I need help, like, you can ask. Ask for help, and I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to direct you to someone who can help you, or give you some advice if I can. But this parable comes after Jesus' answer. Okay, so he says, I, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. You're going to be with this person, bearing with this person or this situation if you're going to be my disciple. Um, and because this is a hard teaching and because he has to get his disciples' imagination around this, he's going to tell a parable. So I'm going to first read the whole thing. It's a bit of a longer parable. I'm going to read the whole thing and then come back through it bit by bit. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, this is the parable, who wished to settle an account with his slaves. Okay, so you're drawing up an image of a king, a ruler of a country. There's certain slaves that he has, certain servants that he has who owe him money, and he's going to call, every, he's going to call everyone to court, and we're going to settle the accounts. We're just going to get our books, and we're going to put them open, and we're going to make sure that all the accounts are good. So that's the kingdom of heaven is like this, like a king who's wished to settle his accounts. So when he began the reckoning, I love that, that, that um, tr translation, when he began the reckoning, 
one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And this is like millions of dollars in our own, our own currency. Someone who owed him millions of dollars came to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payments to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay, pay you everything. This is like, um, if you do the math, this slave would have to work 200,000 work days to pay this man back. And like, this is a deluded slave. I'll pay it all back. I'm thinking of like Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt kind of moment, you know. Don't worry, Jabba, I'll get you, I'll get you the money. Have patience with me, and I'll pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, this Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. Okay, let's not, let's not lose sight of that. Released him, okay, but not just go and, you know, go run, the, um, go run your business and, and pay me back. It's, I'm going to release you, and I'm going to forgive you. You do not owe me this any longer. But that same slave, as he went out, probably the happiest he's ever been, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. This is like three months' worth of working wages. And seizing him by the throat, getting him in a chokehold, up against the wall, he said, pay what you owe me. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into debtor's prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord, to the king, all that had happened. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's just as breathtaking to us today as it would have been to them. They would have gotten the point just as we do. It's a sharp kind of teaching. So let's go back through this here. For this reason, beginning of the parable here. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with the slaves. And the first thing we learn about forgiveness and self-righteousness is that it's about debts. And if you want to get into forgiveness and what this is about, you look at what someone owes you. What is it that they owe you? Do they owe you a mother or a father because they were a terrible version of that for you? Did they take away a good childhood? Did they take away an opportunity for you to become uh, promoted? What is it that a person has taken away from you is the question you have to ask if you want to figure out if you've forgiven them or not. You have to name again. Name what's been taken away. And so what is that for us? What is that for you? Can you, can you think of something that someone has taken away from you in your life? Can you explicitly name what that person has taken away? It's the, fir it's the first step towards the freedom that forgiveness involves. Make explicit this debt. And that's what the king was doing. He was calling up an account, beginning the reckoning of someone who owed, owed him something, a terrible price. And for some of you, you, you think of something that you can't really quantify. Like, what, it, like, 
if, if, if you didn't have a good father, if, if, if you didn't have a good father in your life or a father who's absent, like, what's that worth? Can you quantify that in, t- in terms of money? Like, you can't. You realize that the amount of money is so incredibly large of all, of all that that would take to, to have it. You realized, uh, just like this, millions of dollars of debt, um, someone may be in this much debt to you. And, and so the parable says, so the slave fell on his knees before him and said, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him everything. And so he wasn't able. And sometimes, here's the thing, like, sometimes people cannot acknowledge what they've done to us. Like, for whatever reason, they cannot bring themselves to acknowledge the pain they've inflicted upon us and the loss, which is ours because of their actions. Just like this this. This person, they, they, like, have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything. No, no. You're never going to pay, pay back um, what you've taken away. And this, this Lord here decided to forgive this person. Uh, but there's consequences, right? There's consequences to, to our relational strife and our traumas. Um, sorry, go back one here. I'll go back to you together with his wife and his children, all his possessions. He almost had to sell his wife and his kids to, to sort of uh, to, to pay back what he owed. But even then, you know, what's, what's all this worth? How can you quantify this? Um, so without the forgiveness, without the act of forgiveness, without the work of forgiveness in the life of this slave comes alienation, comes, you know, losing his wife and his child forever and ever and that's, that's what the danger is of our human way of being, this, this human culture which doesn't know how to forgive, doesn't know how to, to, to go through this process of reconciliation. Alienation after alienation, split after split, unwillingness after unwillingness to, um, to find reconciliation. It costs us so, so much. And this whole ethic, this whole way of thinking, this forgiving of the debt, has to do with preserving relationship. So the master took pity on him and let him go. I wonder what that must have felt like to know that deep down, like this is kind of a self-deluded person, but to come to terms with the fact that we've been forgiven that much, what's that experience like of forgiveness? One of the things that uh, Paul was tasked with in his ministry was preaching a gospel of forgiveness um, to help people understand that God has forgiven them of an insurmountable debt. Like that's, what, that's what a major part of what this whole Christian thing is about, is coming to terms with all which we've done and failed to do in our lives and all the ways in which God is forgiving us. But here's the thing, and here's where we begin to get the self-righteousness, you know. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, three months' worth of wages. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. And this is really the crux of it for this morning. I mean, think about that. How oftentimes are we, do we have someone in a chokehold? Pay me what you owe me. What does that look like for us? Because that's what... That's what Jesus is saying that love in his way has none of. It has none of this choking kind of action. Obsessing on what they took from us. This Celestine 
uh, author said, in, in Rwanda, after the war, for years, months and years, there was this back and forth retaliation killing kind of thing that happened. Um, and they said, justice was not defined by fair judgment, but rather by what people would feel would give them a sense of relief, even if it meant vengeance on an innocent person from the wrong tribe. You hear that? What would give us a sense of relief from the pain? That's the choking part. Pay me what you owe me. Pay me what you took from me. And if, it's that, if that's the way that we um, act as Christians, we are so far from what Jesus has to say about his way of love. And even more so, some of us, I think, are just choking ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves for some things that we've done. We've got ourselves in a chokehold and pressing ourselves up against the wall because we can't receive and experience the forgiveness of the Father and we can't go and name what we've done wrong to a person because of whatever reason. We can't, we can't engage the process of reconciliation. So we're all just in this great group chokehold um, trying to recover our dignity. But in this posture, in this way of being, um, we lose our indebtedness to God we lose the sense of, okay, I'm the one who's been forgiven so much. Who am I to choke myself or another person? And we do this at great peril. So on, on we go. This fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Fellow slave doesn't owe him nearly as much as what he owed, but this person can't forgive him. He refused and he went and threw him in prison. And what do we do? How do we do that? How do we throw our are the people who were estranged with into prison? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Rowan Williams, a uh, great theologian, talked about the idea of when we withhold the process of forgiveness with people, we also hold the potential for them to be free. We, we, we keep and we steal that. Um, sorry, is that mine? No, okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> um, we, we withhold that's probably an important point I'm trying to get distracted from a really important point um, okay so uh, how do we withhold freedom from people when we are, refuse to forgive them uh, Rowan Williams talked about this as oftentimes we are estranged with a person and instead of really understanding and relating with him, we stand back at a distance and we begin to diagnose their illnesses, their mental illnesses, their problems, their, their issues. And we stand back and we, we think we understand exactly what's making a person wrong with them. And instead of continuing to find ways to engage in that relationship, we simply um, ask ourselves, you know, you know how, might, uh, how might I have... Like, how might I have the answer to all the problems? Like, like we, we would know, right? And so we, we, we do that thinking that we're just sort of being right. We're just sort of, you know, holding off relationship. And, and that's really um, preventing them from being free as well. Some people won't listen. Some people won't be able to hear what we have to say. Some people won't hear our story. But the point is, is unless we're in an ongoing act of trying to work on the reconciliation. We've stepped outside of Jesus' way of love. Now this last bit here. Um, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy 
on your fellow slave as I've had mercy on you. And I like, like this, this line, it kind of becomes a byline. And Jesus talked about all the time, like, you know, I forgive in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive them, Father, I, for, for, you have, for I have been forgiven. Forgive me and help me forgive others. There's that movement in much of his teaching of uh, how forgiving others and being forgiven is, is intertwined. There's so much, so much in his teachings. And he, he very often and very clearly says, unless you want to be forgiven by your Father, you have to forgive others. You have to be in this process. But, but this line you know, doesn't come up in Jesus' teaching a lot as some of the other ones have, but it's just as pronounced and, and really encapsulates lots of it. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And that becomes the heart of it all. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I have had mercy on you? And in the next series, what we're going to do, we'll have Dave Smith, he's preaching next week over to the Salvation Army. But the week after, when we get back, I'm going to begin a series just walking through the book of Philippians. Because the selfless love in this idea is like the centerpiece of what Paul is teaching on. We're going to go, I think it's seven weeks or six weeks, we'll walk through the Philippians verse by verse. And I'll highlight this um, idea for us. Should we have not had mercy on our fellow slaves as I've had mercy on you? Uh, this idea of what does it look like practically to, to carry out this love in our relationships? So through Philippians, talking about our relationships, how this all should work. Um, and I forgot to say earlier that, you know, as I, <laughs> this last verse, in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he'd pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Which I'm like, oh Jesus, this is Pandora's box. Like how am I supposed to preach on this today? Um, this is where some Christians have the idea of purgatory coming in, and there's that's not necessarily talking about purgatory here, and and then the relationship with the Father and how this sharp teaching works. Like I, I'm not I'm not in a series on forgiveness, which I wish I were at this point, like so I could lay out many weeks of how forgiveness works and how how um, Jesus' teaching on forgiveness leads us. I'm talking about forgiveness and self righteousness today, but there's so much here that I can't get into. Um, but this last little bit. If you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And I, I want to get into just a little bit of what that means. Again, this doesn't mean sitting at home in silence just going, okay, there's, I'm going to make an emotional shift towards this person. That's not what this means. Forgiving someone from your heart is willing to walk through a long process that starts with truth-telling. And when someone comes to us and they say, you hurt me. And we say, I'm sorry that you felt hurt by me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm sorry that what I did made you feel hurt. We're not, even, we're not even there yet. We've got to get explicit. I'm sorry that when I did this, it hurt you. That's the kind of beginning of forgiving someone in our heart. We have to be willing to name. And a person may not be ready to hear, like I said. Um, and if, if that's the case, then we forbear. We, we hold on to the hope that in the future we can have that conversation. And in the meantime, there is heart work that you can do. And it may not be possible to hear I'm sorry from someone. And we do have to begin releasing. And what we do is we name what was taken from us. And we say, you don't owe me that anymore. Was it, again, I'll go with the example of a father. Is it possible, even if you don't get the, I'm sorry, I was a terrible father to you. Um, can, you get, can you go, 
okay, that person wasn't a great father to me, but they don't owe that to me anymore. That's where we, be, we, we can begin in our heart doing that work. But again, this is until they, they are ready to admit that as well. We're forbearing. Um, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I stole that from you. It might be a thing that you know that you need to go to someone else today to say, I took something from you. I know I took something from you, and I, all this time I haven't been able to admit it. But I know it now. You may, you may be years or months or years down the road, but you might be able to say, okay, I did take something from someone. Prayerfully approaching that person and being explicit, I took this away from you, and I'm sorry, uh, is a great place to begin this process. And you can see how Jesus' ethic of love begins to change things. You point out what's wrong, but when you do, let me, let me suggest that if, if you're going to go to someone and approach them because they've taken something from you, they've, they've, you, they owe you something, a great way to start the conversation is owning up to some of your own part in the deal. Because usually, it's, uh, usually there's, there's two sides of, 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 of every issue. And not always, but sometimes, or usually. Um, and so you might say, hey, here's what I was bringing to the table, um, but here's what you took from me. If you front with the, your own part of the issue, this person's going to be way more receptive to hearing what they took from you. So that's just a, a little piece of advice as well. Now, you don't owe me anymore. What does that look like? What does that feel like? In either scenario of someone's owning up to their issue or not, I think it looks like this. Like, how do you know you've forgiven someone? How do you know you've walked that road and done that path? And I think it looks like this. Can you bless them in your heart? Like, can you sit down in a time of prayer and bless them? And I'm not going like, God, show them that I'm right about everything. <laughs> That's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. Like, God, can you bless them? Can you, can, you, can you bring goodness in their life today? Can you help them in their workplace or in their other relationships? Can you do that? If you think you can do that, if you think you can bless someone out of your heart, um, you've, you're well down the road of, of forgiveness. And um, if that's true, maybe you can try to do it for seven days in a row. Bless them, Father. Would you give them good things? And if there's any repulsion, any wanting back of what they took from you, you, think you have more work to do. Um, oh, there's so much good stuff here. Okay, so in order to do this all, Jesus is telling us that we have to rid ourselves of self-righteousness. If we're going to get into any of this work, we have to first understand how much we've been forgiven by God. And that's the work of love. And how we enter into love um, in the next many weeks, we're going to talk about specifically what this looks like in relationships. Like I'm going to give us practical examples here uh, with the book of Philippians in hand. We're going to talk about uh, the, the generally self-giving nature of love. And when we say, I love you, what are we meaning? I want you for myself. I desire you. I need you. You complete me. Is that what, like when we say I love you, is that what we're saying? Because if we do, then we are, we are firmly outside of our understanding of love in the Christian circle. But um, also, we have to understand that this is not the way God loves us either. It's not what he's saying to, to us. When he says I love you, he's not saying I want you for myself. I desire you. I need you. You complete me. If you, if you have that view of God, 
saying I love you, it's, it's wrong. That's not how God loves us. That's not what it's about. But when we talk about love, sum this first little mini-series up, I love you means this, I will pour out myself for you. I am not your slave, but I am your servant. I will stay calm when you treat me as a child. I will humble myself. I will take a hard look at my faults before I try to pick yours out. How can I help heal you? If you want to tell another person that you love them, this is what you mean if you're going to do it in the Christian framework. And this is what God means when he says, I love you as well. God's saying to us, I will pour out myself for you. I am not your slave, but I will be your servant. I will stay calm when you treat me like a child. I will humble myself. I will take a hard look at my faults, and God doesn't find any, before I try to pick yours out. How can I help heal you? This is the love of the master. This is the love of the father which he's showing to us, and it's so different than everything we know, and it changes everything. And as a final kind of point here, uh, there are some movements which happen when we begin to get a hold of this love which is purified from self-preservation and self-exalting and self-righteousness. These movements which I'm kind of beginning to to discover. Like we we all want to go home sometimes, right? Like I'm just so tired, I want to go home. But what does it serve? What does that sentiment serve? We want to go home so that we can give a home to someone else. I want to find myself. I want to discover myself. But why are we in self-discovery? but to give it away. I need to rest. I'm tired. But why are we resting? We're resting in order that we have the energy, energy to give others rest. I need a community. I need to find people who are like me. I need to find someone who I can feel. No, we, we get community so that we can give it to others. And these are the movements of the Christian heart and Christian love. So here, here we go. We've made a good beginning in the love of the master in the, in the series we're in. And I would invite you all, no matter what's hitting you today, to think about how you are in that journey, moving from the love, which is the love of our culture, into the love of our master. It's a, it's a massive change that needs to happen. And as we do so, we, um, we will come to understand just how much we need God in the process. So I'll leave it there today. Um, and maybe would invite you to think about the way that God is calling you to love and receive his love. And uh, whatever, whatever is sticking with you today, whatever that means for you, I invite you to come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. This is a symbol that we do every week to remember, to remind ourselves that the love of the master is a love which is of broken bread and of poured out blood. So I would invite you to the table. The table is set and everyone here is welcome.